Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Very special edition of the Three Down Nation podcast. Not only are we going to break down the 2020 CFL draft, but we have the one, the only, Dwayne Ford on the line with a number of other draft geeks, let's say. Forty, first of all, what was it like for you to do the broadcast virtually with TSN? Yeah, you know, it was... Um... Just logistically, I, I was nervous going into it because we we kind of laughed after the fact that we had we had had some rehearsals. I think it was Dave Naylor that made the comment after that the the show went incredibly well, considering that our completion percentage was not that great during the rehearsals. But just uh, you know the the timing of things when you can't you can't make eye contact with each other, and it's it's hard to be as conversational as you would like in um, in the situation. Without without those verbal cues or gestures and and things like that, like we we couldn't see each other at, at all. Like you know, some of the guys I know had monitors with the the feed up, but that feed is behind where where you actually are, and so it it wasn't necessarily helpful in that way. But uh, yeah, I thought it went I thought it went extremely well. Um, you know, the the guys did a great job. It was uh, it was actually kind of fun to to do something something different and something unique and you know to be appearing live on TSN from my own basement was uh was a, a first time experience. You had to kick your son out, right, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, this is usually uh the basement is usually his domain. And uh, you know, he's usually lounging on the couch down here, whether it's he actually will do his homework down here or whether he's yelling and screaming with buddies playing video games or or whatever the case is, but uh, but yeah, I, I was able to to commandeer the basement for for a few days and make it the the makeshift studio. 
you came off knowledgeable as always. And we also have John Hodge on the line and JC Abbott who were studying the draft like mad for us over at three down guys. I feel like we should naturally start out in BC because that's where the fireworks sort of took place to kick off the CFL draft. Did anyone in here see the trade coming? The lions going up to number one, maybe Hodge, I'll go to you first. Well, the, the chatter leading up to the draft, as I reported for three down on uh, Wednesday morning, was the player that the Stamps really coveted was Isaac Adeyemi Berglund, the defensive end out of uh, southeastern Louisiana. And, you know, I, looking at the roster, I can see how that's the fit. I, I think the Stamps see him as a guy who can, you know, rotate along that defensive line. He can play a little bit of three-tech, which is where they start Derek Wigan have now for, for a number of years. Uh, they did play a Canadian in the linebacking core last year in Corey Greenwood, but when he got hurt, they, they went American at that spot. And I'm just not convinced that that's, you know, something that they kind of looked at long-term is, is, is playing a Canadian there. So to me, I, I wasn't surprised in that, you know, uh, uh, the Stamps coveted their guy. They felt they could get him a little bit later probably not much later than, than three. I think four was probably the lowest they could have gotten them with uh, the Ticats being a, a potential landing spot at five. But the, the thing that caught me a little bit off guard was just the lack of chatter about BC. The Lions obviously played their cards very close to the chest, waited until the, the perfect time, and and the trade got made. And, and I'll commend both sides. You know, Jordan Williams is the kind of talent that, comes along extremely rarely in the CFL, especially when you consider the fact that you're going to get him right away. He's not the NFL. You don't have to hope that he, you know, gets cut or, or doesn't make a team. He's going to be with you right away. And and Calgary as well. They they got the guy they wanted, but they didn't have to take him right at the top of the draft and and use that pick to to move up in the second round. Abbott, what was your reaction? You know what. I was very, very pleasantly surprised by the move. Obviously, as Hodge mentioned, there wasn't a whole lot of chatter about BC in particular moving up, but it's something I sort of identified in our conversations about it as maybe a natural fit for that move because I did feel that BC had a knee at Canadian linebacker and Ed Hervey being able to move up and pick a guy I think is, in terms of Canadian talent, generational. Uh, in his athleticism and can plug and play right into your starting lineup over Adam Konar uh, was just a fantastic move. Forty, if you can, take us behind the scenes at TSN. When did you guys get word of the trade and how quickly did you have to pivot as an on-air personality? Yeah, I mean, we we found out sort of moments moments before the public found out, I guess. Um, you know, basically for us, we uh, we would get notified of – of the picks uh, typically not long before we announce them. Like typically it would be, you know, basically seconds before, but you, you would know what was coming, um, you know, in terms of who I'd be talking about and so on. I would know as Farhan was kind of queuing up the pick, I would know already um, who I was going to be talking about, but yeah. So we, we found out about, uh, about the trade is, but we had prepped sort of all week and even, even in our rehearsals, like, I mean, it was, wasn't until the trade was actually made. It wasn't one of those where we, we knew, you know, an hour before the show that this trade is going to happen when the draft starts. It, it happened in real time for us as well. 
Did it surprise you, Forty? Because you got a lot of connections in the league, and typically you can probably go into the draft and essentially go down the first round and tell us what's going to happen. So was there any inkling to you going into it that number one could actually change hands? There, there was a sense that, um, you know, as, as John mentioned, that, that Calgary was willing to trade down. Isaac Adeyemi Berglund was the guy that they had kind of zeroed in on and recognized that he was a guy that they didn't need to pick at number one. But there was a guy in this draft in Jordan Williams that was, was at the top of a lot of teams' draft boards and, and JC is bang on, right? This is, this is an incredibly unique guy that uh, if you don't get Jordan Williams this year, it's not like you have another Jordan Williams in every draft. And, and so there was a bit of a sense that somebody, somebody should want that pick, right? Somebody who wants to start a Canadian linebacker should want that pick. And when you look at the BC Lions, I hadn't heard any buzz about BC. I, and it so, sort of reached a point where we get to 7 o'clock and that pick hasn't been moved. I'm thinking that Calgary's going to keep the pick. But BC has been a team that has kind of struggled to find its Canadian starters on defense for a couple of years. You know, they had some high picks on the D-line that didn't work out for them, um, you know, in terms of production and guys like uh, Julian Laurent, uh, Junior Luke, who has since moved back east in free agency. And so the opportunity to get Jordan Williams and know you've got a guy who, who sooner than later is going to fit into your, your starting lineup as a Canadian. And you're already insulated at the position with, um, with Jordan Herdman-Reed having, having started games there before. You've, you know you've got a guy who can get you through, through a stretch if, uh, if you've got injuries that, um, that it, you look at it in hindsight and it's a pretty good fit. Did Calgary get full value for the pick, though? And I almost say that in a rhetorical way because you look at the deal overall. Calgary goes down two picks in the first round and only comes up three picks in the second round. Now, it was clear afterwards that they had targeted former UBC receiver Travel Pinto in that second round and wanted to get above a couple of other teams to make sure they got him. But if you had a value chart, and I maybe throw it open to all you guys, would that be a deal that you were comfortable making, even though you didn't maybe extract the kind of big-time value you would think from trading the number one pick? I think, Justin, that if you just look at the numerical value of the picks, maybe it's not a great value trade. But if you look at the guys they selected, I think Agiemi Berglund, obviously they were in love with him. But Travel Pinto is a first-round player if he doesn't have those off-the-field concerns. So they got tremendous value with the players they were able to select in return, uh, and that makes it a valuable trade. This isn't necessarily answering the question, but the thing that I kind of chuckled at at 15 was the player who I, I kind of penciled in the Lions targeting at 12 or initially was Trivel Pinto, a guy who they liked internally, who's local, who you know can do a lot of the same things that maybe a Shaq Johnson can do. Uh, potentially a guy who could move into the slot eventually, could contribute as a return specialist. And then the guy I had penciled in for Calgary at 15 was quarterback Nathan Rourke, who, uh, you know, we've seen the, the, the Stamps take Canadian quarterbacks in the past and develop them. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it was a fit for me. Um, you know, and, and the Stamps, I think, need to, especially following the trade of Nick Arbuckle, need to upgrade their their backup quarterbacking situation behind Bo Levi Mitchell. So to me, the thing that made me tr- uh, chuckle is that the, the picks changed hands, 12 for 15, 
but the players who I anticipated possibly going there still did just, you know, of course, to, uh, to opposite teams, which I thought was pretty funny. You know, Mr. Hodge, there, there are no half marks here, right? <laughs> in, your, in your mock draft, you, you, you don't get credit for being half right. That's awesome. Or what about you? Did yeah, you feel I, like I, Calgary could have got more value? Yeah, I, I think it's possible that they could have gotten a little bit more, but I think that, um, that quite honestly, my, my take on it is very similar to JC, is did you – did you get what you wanted? Did you put yourself in position to get what you wanted? There's no guarantee. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll never know for sure um, whether they could have, could have had Travel Pinto at, had they stayed at 15 in the second round. They knew though that they could, they could kind of be sure of both guys by making that trade. And, and ultimately that's, that's how it worked out. So, um, you know, I mean, in, in a lot of ways to me, Calgary with the first pick, for Nick Arbuckle, it's like they were playing with house money, right? They got a pick for a guy who they were going to lose in free agency anyway. They got a first round pick for the, they got the first overall pick for a guy they were going to lose for nothing in free agency. And so it was almost like anything they did with it was, was going to be a bonus. And that extra third rounder too. Now stuck in the yeah. middle of all this are the Toronto Argos. They go receiver in Dejan Brissett, but can we look at it from the standpoint of if Calgary zeroed in on a guy and we know the success that the Stampeders have had over the years and they want Isaac Adiemi Berglund at three, should Toronto have taken him at two? Well, for me, I, I would say that that wasn't, that wasn't the direction Toronto was going as much as some of us may have looked at Toronto's roster and thought, you know, to get one of the the defensive linemen and a defensive end to to sort of go along with Robbie Smith on their roster would have made some sense. But uh, but Toronto seemed like they were they were set on the direction of um, receiver and offensive lineman with those two two first round picks. They kind of seemed locked in on on those as their two positions of need and and you know the objects of their affection, so to speak, to Jean Brissett being being that guy at receiver. Yeah, and I think to me, sorry. uh, Go ahead, JC. I think to me, it goes back back to all the moves they made in the off season. They're really putting emphasis on building that Canadian receiving core, uh, acquiring uh, Jawan Breskison, still in the process, uh, depending on what happens with the league uh, on acquiring TJ Jones, uh, building up that receiving core to potentially start three guys there. So taking Brissett, who's a guy who can back up or potentially uh, step into a starting role uh, midway through a season if there's an injury, uh, makes a lot of sense in the first round. To, to me, if you give me the choice of Dijon Brissett or Isaac Adiemi Berglund, um, I'm taking Adiemi Berglund every time. That's just my opinion. Um, I think he has better upside on special teams. I think he maybe has better upside as as a future starter. And, and the other red flag for me a little bit with Brissett is as much as he was dominant as a junior with the Richmond Spiders, he got hurt his senior year, grad transferred to Virginia, and and didn't really produce. And so I, I appreciate that he's a local product and his you know, his brother plays for for the Toronto Raptors. I mean, it's hard to argue with that if you know you're you're an MLSE owned team. And you're looking to, uh, to to help build a fan base, but 
you know, p- positionally, I think it's I think it's a fit. And, and obviously, positional fits have a lot to do with what teams do on draft day. Uh, but for me, I, if I'm the Argos, um, at least talent-wise, I think Adiemi Berglund may have been the better pick. And I'll also add in the fact that Thomas Jack Kirtla, uh, you know, who, who's generally seen as the only plug-and-play lineman in this draft. Every other lineman, either you've got Carter O'Donnell in the NFL, who you have to wait on, or you've got developmental guys, guys who will need a year or two. Uh, we'll talk more about those guys later on in the broadcast. But, you know, to me, Jack Hurdle is a guy who can come and start for you right away. And I think, you know, uh, as much as Brissett might be a future star, and trust me, I'd love to see him light up the CFL. Uh, I think I think personally, if I was if I was in the Argos shoes, I would have gone in a different direction at second overall. Yeah, I, I think you can make a, a stronger argument for, for Tomas Jack Kurdela in that spot than for Isaac Adeyemi Berglund in that spot. You know, you mentioned the, the guarantee of, of a special teams body type, but in addition to um, upgrading that receiving core, and as JC said, sort of putting themselves in position to potentially start three, I think that there's, there's a trade-off that goes with that for, uh, for the Toronto Argonauts is if you're, if you're kind of looking to load up your Canadian talent on the offensive side of the ball is recognizing that you're, you're probably looking at, at an all American front defensively. So in terms of depth, we look and go, you know what? Yeah, they could use a defensive end, but think about the linebackers that they added and those, that group of, of Canadians, uh, Nick Shortle, Bola Combo, Chris Aki that they brought in, in, um, you know, during the off season, that these guys are are the guys that are going to address that that depth and and the special teams and so on, in addition to what they may give you defensively. But going receiver and putting yourself in the best possible position to to load up with Canadians on offense allows you to to maybe be not quite as deep in Canadians on defense simply because of of what you're looking to do ratio wise with your Americans. And Brissett could make us all kind of look well. I shouldn't say all of us, but look stupid because really with just that Jones fracture in his foot that kind of held him back his final year at Richmond and then at the University of Virginia. And we should give the kid a little bit of credit. He was on the field in the ACC championship game against Clemson, who obviously went on to play in the national title game. So he's playing at an elite level. He might not have had that production, but as you guys all know, there are a few amount of Canadians that get to that level in the NCAA and even get on the field. I feel like other years, you know, we're talking about guys from big programs, you know, Michigan state pops to mind. Let's say a guy like Matt Rea in recent years that, yeah, they're at that big school. They haven't played very much. I really believe if Brissett was healthy, that he probably would have been fairly productive. And we always forget about it. And I think it's easy. And yeah, it's coming from a former quarterback, but that relationship with the quarterback, means so much on the field. And I think when we look at just the sheer numbers, sometimes we can get tricked a little bit. So maybe the Argos sort of see that ability and what he can bring to their system. And that's why he slides into number two for, I think that's kind of what you're sort of getting at. My, my counter to that though, would be to say, okay, well, if you, if you're Toronto and you love Brissett, that's all well and good. If, if you've identified him as this talent and, and as a perfect fit, you know, for ratio, for, for, you know, regionality, whatever. But to me, I, I think internally Toronto was looking at it saying, okay, let's take Brissett at two and hope that Jack Curdola falls to nine. And the reality is that was never happening because a four-year starter at an NCAA program with a, with a quality offensive line like the Bulls have had, 
you know, perfect size for, for the CFL, moves well at 6'3", 300 pounds. I think the odds of Jack Curdle are falling. I mean, anything's possible, especially in the CFL draft, but I think the odds of Jack Curdle are falling past four were not high. And if he and if he makes it past Edmonton, where he ended up getting selected, I think seven at Saskatchewan's a, a potential, and certainly eight to Hamilton is a potential. So, you know, I, I think if you're the if you're the Argos and you want Jack Curdle and you want Brissett, I think the odds of getting both are better if you take Jack Curdle at two and hope that Brissett falls to nine. Entirely possible, of course, that Brissett goes off the board before nine, but I think the odds were better if you flip the picks rather than going Brissett at two and Jack Curdle at nine. Ford, you've seen a ton of offensive linemen come through in your day. Can mm-hmm. TJK, I'm going to call him, it's a little easier, start right out of the gate? Does he have that ability? Yeah, I, I think that there's that there's every reason to believe that he, he can certainly compete for a starting spot. If you're the Edmonton Eskimos, you, you hope that you're in a position that you don't need to start a rookie on day one or that if you do start him, that it's because he has forced you to start him by by what he's done but again you look at a kid who has been you know as john said a, a four-year starter on what ultimately became one of the best offensive lines in division one football um you've got to believe that he is he's as prepared as he can be to uh to take the next step so it's probably fair to say so that probably fair to say the top that... four picks overall were something that we sort of expected jordan williams was going to go one. It ended up being BC. There was chatter about Dijon Brissett, warranted or not, Hodge, <laughs> going two to the Argos. <laughs> we knew about Isaac Adiabi Berglin and Thomas Jackardilla being at the top. So Hamilton comes along, and a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, they're going to go sort of any other position other than offensive line at five. I think for a lot of people. So were you guys surprised as a group that Coulter Woodmanzee was the pick? Were you Surprised that it was an offensive lineman. What stuck out to you about that Ticats pick? Well, I was absolutely shocked, Justin. I'm an offensive line guy myself. I love watching offensive line tape. It's the position I coach at the high school level. And for me, this offensive line class was really solid in the middle rounds. Uh, There wasn't a lot of guys I thought projected as top-end instant starters. And Coulter Woodmansey was one of those guys I saw in the middle rounds. I thought he had high upside with, with his heavy hands, but he was a little bit slow, struggled to move a little bit, more of a safe bet in the middle rounds. And so to take him at five, I thought was a pretty massive reach by the Ticats. And that's coming from, from me, a guy who spoke to Woodmansey and, and quite frankly fell in love with him as a kid uh, in this draft process just because of his work ethic. Yeah, for me, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised necessarily that he was the next offensive lineman off the board because I think when you look at this, this O-line class in general, it, it was one where I think if you looked at the, the draft boards for nine teams, I think what you would see is that all nine teams probably had the exact same number one and number two guys. But you might have seen, honestly, nine different names. As the, as the number three guy in the O-line class. I think that there was just a lot of variety in terms of, in terms of evaluation. Uh, this is, in terms of the O-line group, this is about where I had Coulter Woodmansey kind of as, as the number three or number four guy, obviously looking at Carter O'Donnell as one, uh, Tomas Jack Cordilla as, as two. Um, 
So I wasn't surprised that he was the next alignment off the board, but within sort of the, the value of the draft pick, so to speak. Um, yeah. I felt like they could have, they could have picked him later. The, uh, the pick for me was a surprise l- largely just, just given the depth and you touched on this a little bit, Dunk is that, that the tie cats have along the offensive line and, Look, I, I fully appreciate I fully wanting appreciate to that. replenish offensive talent along the O-line. It's arguably the most important position in football outside of, of the quarterback spot. And uh, certainly, you know, anybody familiar with the CFL draft knows that you're going to see offensive linemen come off the board early and often. But given the fact that, you know, the Ticats have a solid starting four and then behind them, you know, they've got Kay Okafor, who's probably ready for a starting role. But, you know barring injury won't won't have one you've got jesse gibbon the second overall pick from last year who's again probably ready for a starting role but barring injury won't have one i thought okay with you know some of the talent that's still there be it a future pick maybe like a mark antoine de uh, maybe a michael hoyt in this spot you know hamilton is two first rounders they could really given their depth and the number of picks they have they could really make a splash here and to to I don't I don't know if I want to use the word default, but to say okay, well we'll take the next O lineman regardless of who it is, was a surprise for me. Um, I talked to some teams today, uh, day after the draft, and one team said, well we had this is this is touching on what what Dwayne you know spoke to with with O lineman being you know in, in a variety of different orders. One team had him in the second round. One team said, eh, you know end of two, top of three, we would have taken him. And another said, for, for us, honestly, he was firmly in the fourth. So, you know, evidently the Ticats were high on him. And, uh, you know, I, I, I bet he'll be a starter one day because they do a great job developing their offensive linemen. But it was a surprise for me. Not, not that he landed there as a local guy, too, but just that he went as high as he did for a team without any immediate needs along the O-line. Well, and your point there, Hodge, about – the different takes on Woodman's he speaks to exactly what Ford was saying that the draft boards are vastly different. I think that's a really important piece of the CFL draft that you go across the league and it can be so varying that literally every team, I think could tell you after the draft that, Hey, we got a number of players that we wanted in our slots and it's actually truthful. I think we see that a lot of times in the NFL draft, but that's a whole other different ball game. But I just feel like all of you guys, except for Ford, are hating on my University of Guelph boy, Coulter Woodmansey. All right, so we'll leave it at that, and we'll move on to the Ottawa Red Black Six. six. They go Adam O'Claire, the outstanding linebacker slash defensive back from Laval University. Were they ever going to go anywhere else other than O'Claire? I feel like this was sort of locked and loaded, unless he was going to go earlier in the draft. Did you guys get a sense that they were even looking at any other player or position at six? I think that defensive line would have been a consideration for them at uh, at six, but it would have taken different circumstances. I think it would have taken either, um, you know, I mean, Michael Hoyt, they end up getting later. But I think if you were in a situation, for example, where Michael Hoyt doesn't have the NFL deal, I mean, he's probably gone before six, obviously, but he's a guy they'd have looked at. If Isaac Adeyemi Berglund had slipped lower and had fallen to six, I think that's a place they would have looked. But I think one way or another, they were going to go on the defensive side of the ball. There was a definite need um, at linebacker. I, I like the skill set of Adam O'Claire. I think he's, uh, he's kind of a, a unique guy 
in how aptly he fits today's Canadian Football League defenses that I think he can he can give you some snaps relatively early in his career. But uh, but yeah, definitely when you kind of look at the on the defensive side of the ball for Ottawa, it, it's one that makes sense for them. I, I like the the pick a lot. Uh, to me, the only other guy who I think you know was probably there on the board for Ottawa at least prior to him signing in the NFL was Marc Antoine Decroix. I think he he could have been the pick if he was there, but once you know you you have the potential risk of him making an NFL roster. I think Eau Claire's the guy, and and you know, I, honestly, I, I think Ottawa has needed to upgrade their personnel on special teams for for a little while. There's there's kind of a a crew there that's been there for a while. You want to talk about guys like Nigel Romick or or JP Polduk. Um, you know, he's been there, I guess, for a couple of years only, but but Justin Howell in that group as well of of guys there who you know, uh, I, I'm not saying they're they're not good players, but maybe a little bit long in the tooth um, in the next year or two, you'll have to kind of start replenishing that, that special teams core. And Eau Claire is a guy who can do that day one. Um, obviously he's a candidate to take over uh, at, at a certain point for Antoine Pruneau at, at safety. He can also do lots of good things for you uh, in your linebacking core. But to me, he, he's a guy who's going to make an immediate impact. And, and that's why I, I personally really like the pick. I do as well because I feel he is so similar to Antoine Pruneau. And that was one of the early draft picks that set the Ottawa Red Blacks up for success. Picking one of those guys who has played a little bit of Sam linebacker, a little bit of a halfback at the U Sports level, at a highly productive level as well. I mean, with Eau Claire, you're talking about a President's Trophy winner for Defensive Player of the Year in U Sports, and not one where he just won it this year. Uh, as a fourth-year guy with lots of experience. He won this two years ago uh, in 2017 as a younger guy and continued to produce at a high level afterwards. So you're getting a really talented, natural football player who fits a mold uh, that they already have in their lineup. Pretty solid pick there. So then we come to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders at seven. There had been some talk about do they move down, try to acquire another pick? Because they didn't have another one again until the fourth round because of various trades. Did you guys ever really see that as a possibility for Saskatchewan trying to move down? To me, not really, because I, I thought that they had enough needs that were, were somewhat, somewhat pressing um, that you know at number seven, you're, you're still going to get a player that you like instead of maybe moving down and and settling for two guys somewhere else. Um, they got a guy who, you know, both on paper and football wise is, is an excellent fit, obviously for their organization. I was, I was a little bit surprised only in that with Eau Claire coming off the board at six, if I'm Danny Machocha and I I'm desperate to get my former Caravan star defensive back, Mark Antoine Decroix, you know, I think it might be a bit tough to wait till 14. Now, in hindsight, Decroix was on the board there. The Alouettes, you know, ran to the microphone to take him. And, uh, you know, as, as I think JC said on the live stream, uh, the uh, Machocha may have wet himself in excitement uh, <laughs> at the opportunity to, uh, to take, to take Decroix. Because he, he's the perfect fit for that organization. And, and I looked at Saskatchewan as a team. Okay, you don't have any second rounders. You don't have any third rounders. 
you know, why not if if you're the Alouettes, say, we'll give you two second rounders or, or we'll give you a second and a third and you let us uh, move up seven spots. So I thought that was a possibility. But, you know, as Mr. Ford said, it worked out perfectly. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders got the, the offensive lineman they coveted and uh, the Alouettes were able to keep their picks and, and still get Machocha's guy in, uh, in, in Decoy at, at 14. I just wanted to, to make a comment on, on Matlin Riley because we're talking about trading down, but I really like this kid. I'm not sure I would have taken him at seven, but I think you guys can vouch for the fact when we sat down for our pre-draft meeting and, and ranked the guy, guys, uh, I made the comment, why does no one love Matlin Riley? Why was he so low that at that point in the draft process? And I'm happy to see him rise up boards. I'm not sure if he's a seventh overall pick in terms of talent and athleticism, but this is a guy who's a local kid. He's a grinded out pro style offensive lineman. You can sit, he can sit behind Brandon Labatt and, uh, and Dan Clark and fill either of those roles. Once one of those guys decides to retire, uh, just a really good, hardworking local kid. You know, one of the things that I, I've found, JC, with uh, with this draft over the years, and, you know, I'm sure you guys have, have seen the same experience, is it's, it's almost like it doesn't matter what the the offensive line class looks like in a given year, is teams are going to take offensive linemen in the first round of the draft. And so, you know, even if guys have second round, third round, fourth round grades, like it's almost like their union cards give them like a quota, right? Like we have to have at least X number of spots in the first round of the draft go to go to offensive linemen that whether they're sort of pro ready or not, whether they're a year away, two years away, whatever the case may be, that uh, that we're going to have a certain number of them. So it's it's almost like we almost have to ignore where they're taken sort of when they're taken within the draft and, and evaluate them based on relative to one another where they're taken, if that makes sense. It's almost like quarterbacks in the NFL draft. I feel like they get pushed up the board and are traded up for all the time. And offensive linemen to me are that equivalent in the CFL draft. I think that's a really good point, you guys. Uh, And one thing I'd say too, I think, what we saw here with these offensive linemen getting elevated, I made the point on the broadcast that when you're in a, a moment of crisis, uh, you, you don't invest in stocks, you invest in bonds or, or solid things like gold, right? <laughs> things that are stable. Well, in the analogy. Canadian Football League draft, that's, <laughs> that's offensive linemen, right? These are good, solid, hard-nosed guys. You know you're going to have a spot for them in your lineup. Uh, so with a lot of unpredictability about whether there's going to be a season next year or this whole idea of a mass free agency out there uh, in the universe, uh, I think teams really invested at that position, maybe higher than they would have normally for the caliber of player, but they knew they were going to get something that they could use with those selections. Mr. Ford has covered this draft since I was, well, not quite in diapers, but it, it, almost that long. <laughs> you, you still had the beard, um, though. You still had the beard, know. though. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the only kid in second grade who had to who had a five o'clock shadow by second recess. Um, but uh, you know, to to me, uh, looking at this draft, the the draft that I was kind of comparing it to 
was was the draft in 2017 where where we saw a, a quite a run of defensive players in in the first round and you saw guys like Darius Bladek you saw guys who would go on to become starters after a year or two of development go in the second round and and to me the surprise of this year's draft and there were I mean there were a lot of surprising picks and I think you know, the lack of combines and pro days and, and kind of a normal schedule and, and scouting regimen was part of that. But to me, the surprise was that we saw three O-linemen go in the first round after Jack Cordilla because once TJK is off the board, I thought, okay, we might not see another offensive lineman until nine. And the reality is we saw one at five, one at seven, and one at nine. So, you know, I, I, I could have seen the, the riders take Jack Kassar uh, linebacker out of Carlton with kind of a long-term plan to to make that middle linebacker spot in Saskatchewan a Canadian one. Um, I also saw Adam O'Claire there as a fit, and I'm I'm actually not sure O'Claire's not the pick over Riley if he's available at seven. He ended up going one spot before, of course. But you know, I I, I think Riley's a good pick because you know, as JC said, the Riders needed an O lineman, and you know, without a second or third rounder, they're not getting Riley right at 30th with their next pick and they might not be sure that a guy they have you know remotely high on their board even in their top five seven whatever alignment's going to be there so it doesn't offend me by any stretch of the imagination i think riley's going to be going to be a good player for them and let's give the man some credit yeah. he played most of last season with like one hand clear to see on the film well and he he did help pave the way for one of the best rushing seasons in u sports history so I like him as a player. I'm, I'm not at all saying that I'm not a fan. He's also an extremely smart guy. He's an engineer for, for, for Pete's sake. I mean, he's, he's a guy who I think is going to be a good player. I, I, was, I was a bit surprised, um, but, but I'm not suggesting he's not worthy of, of, of a first-round pick, especially when you add in the fact that Saskatchewan needed a player and he's from right there back in, uh, in their own backyard. I will say, too, Justin, that uh... – I spoke to Sam Achipong in the draft process who ended up going 20 to the Argos. And I asked him, who are the best offensive linemen that you've faced in your career? He gave me two names. Number one, Matlin Riley. Number two, Coulter Woodmansey. Those are the two guys that ended up in the first round. Yeah, and I, I think just speaking to kind of the, uh, the push on the, the offensive linemen where maybe they, they go a little bit higher is – it goes back to the idea we talked about of, of kind of every team having a different guy as, as the next guy, right? Everybody's got the same top two. Every team has a different guy as their number three. And it's sort of like, as, you know, as soon as you see another old lineman go off the board, you're thinking, well, our guy's got to be next, right? And it's so you're thinking, I'm not waiting another round for our guy. I'm not waiting any later that that's where you get that that jump in the first round and, and take those guys. Ty catch next after going offensive lineman at five, go defensive line, Mason Bennett at eight. Some thought he had the potential to be the best pure pass rusher in the draft. Although Isaac Adiemi Berglund probably right there with him and clearly went off the board earlier. Did this pick surprise anyone or was it sort of on point with what the Ticats, I think, have done over recent years is kind of tried to solidify the trenches? 
Yeah, it's pretty par for the course for the Ticats. They love to select along that defensive line. They fill it up at, at all different positions with Canadian talents at, at all points in the draft. So if you've got a guy like Mason Bennett, who is an absolutely fantastic pass rusher at, at the University of North Dakota, uh, just has a great get off, really dips underneath, high motor guy with 21 career sacks. Uh, I, I don't think if you're the Ticats and you covet that position, uh, you can afford to let them pass you by. I would agree. To, to me, I, I, I would put Adiemi Berglin and Bennett very close together in terms of uh, their, their, I mean, their production is very similar. They've both got great tape. They, they both have generated a lot of production. And I, w- I would say against, you know, relatively similar levels of competition, um, but the, uh, the, the thing that I'll say is, is Bennett, if you're a team that covers length, he's got it. He's got a little bit more of a traditional defensive end, edge rushing frame at 6'4", 258, whereas Adiemi's just a little bit smaller at, at, at about 6'1", and uh, about 245 pounds. So I think it's a great pick. This is, a, this is the pick, for instance, that I maybe anticipated more happening around the five spot. But, you know, the Ticats are laughing because – they got a guy who's who's going to be potentially a ratio breaker for for you know certainly at least a year or two on that D line in, in Hamilton and they got him at a great spot. Yeah, I, I think one of the things with Mason Bennett is you, you don't need him to be um, a ratio breaker in the sense of being a, a, one of your seven Canadian starters, but one of the things that he allows you in terms of the overall flexibility of your roster is that he he is a guy who very legitimately replaces what has been one of your, your designated American spots, one of your designated import spots, where Hamilton has been a team that has, has often dressed three American defensive ends. Um, they lose Adrian Tracy during the offseason, and Mason Bennett is a guy that comes in and, you know, Julian Hauser, say, moves into the starting lineup for Tracy. Mason Bennett takes over Hauser's spot as that third defensive end, and you've now gained another American that you can use somewhere else. And when you think about that Hamilton coaching staff and, and their creativity in terms of how they use guys, um, that could be a dangerous thing, whether it's, you know, Tommy Condell or, or Mark Washington getting an extra, an extra toy to play with. Yeah. It could be a nice fit there for Bennett. And we were talking a while about offensive linemen getting pushed up the board or maybe taken earlier than, we all thought at seven with Matlin Riley going to Saskatchewan, I don't think anyone saw Theron Churchill out of the University of Virginia going to the Argos at nine. Did this knock you off your seat, Hodge? It did. It really did. And, and I'll say this. I, I saw Churchill live in 2019. Uh, I also saw him live in 2018, and I, I really liked him. You know, he's – He's a little bit older, which I thought would hurt him in the process. He's already 25, having played some junior ball. And that's something we often see from players from Quebec. They have the Cégep year. A lot of guys coming out of, you know, our RSCQ programs are, are 24, 25. It's a lot rarer in, in that that happens in Canada West. But Churchill, you know, I thought, okay, he, he's good enough that he can get you out of a game at tackle where he played with the Rams. But he can, you know, I think if he slots into guard, he moves well enough. He can bend, and I, I you know, he's big, six six, you know, about three fifteen. Uh, I, I really liked him, and then the draft process started heating up, you know, December, January, February, and I don't think I chatted with a single other person 
who, who would tell me they were high on Churchill. Now, today, talking to people, I, I had one person tell me, yeah, if he was there in the second round, we'd take him. I had another team tell me he, he was a fifth rounder on our boards. That's another example of, of what, uh, what Dwayne was saying about, you know, teams draft boards looking very different, especially at the O-line spot. But, you know, he, he's a guy that evidently, you know, the, the Argos feel can, can play at tackle. The Argos are going to play Jamal Campbell there. They took Shane Richards last year, I think with the possibility of him playing some tackle in mind. And though, again, it's considered off the board uh, by a lot of people and a lot of teams. There, there were teams as well who were high on Churchill. And and uh, was I shocked to see him in the first round? Absolutely. But again, I've been a fan of his, and, and he could turn out to be, a, I think, a really good CFL offensive lineman. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with the, the tackle piece, right? Is that when, when you look at this draft class, I know we had the uh, the conversation off air with with our panel, and you know I was asked the question, okay, who are the who are the offensive linemen in this class who can play tackle? To which my response was, great question. It's pretty limited, and Theron Churchill was was one of the few guys in this draft class who who could take some snaps at tackle, and so for a team that's that's kind of committed. To, to going that way with their offensive line, um, you know, he becomes a unique guy in this draft. Again, like we, we talk about uh, Jack Cordilla becoming unique in this draft as a pro-ready guy because he becomes the only one when Carter O'Donnell signs with Indianapolis. And Theron Churchill largely becomes, I'm not going to say the only guy, but in the eyes of a lot of people, maybe the only guy who, who projects is that when you take... O'Donnell out of the mix and um, you know suddenly his value skyrockets for for at least one team right but you only need to have that first round value for one team to become a first round pick the next natural place to go to of course is Nathan Rourke going off the board at 15 and then maybe we'll get into some of the team drafts a little bit but did you guys feel like Rourke was warranted to go in the first round because I kind of got the sense before the draft that his sweet spot was going to be maybe near the end of the first and in the second. I would have been surprised if he fell into the third. Were you thinking this is where he should have gone in terms of range and is the team a nice fit? JC, I'll go to you because you've been our man out on the left coast. I love Nathan Rourke at 15 to BC because – I think he's a guy who maybe doesn't start right away. Obviously, you've got Mike Riley there, but he contributes right away uh, as a short yardage guy. Uh, Nathan Rourke was just a fantastic rusher at Ohio. Uh, That's where he made most of his money. Uh, I think he had 49 career rushing touchdowns, and he's not super, super athletic, uh, but just a guy who never says die, battles through everything. He'll run you over as a quarterback. Uh, And if you want to take hits off Mike Riley – uh, and give yourself someone who can do that short yardage role and excel at the level that Riley has, uh, I think he's a natural fit. And I think he's also the best backup they've got on their roster. Yeah, I think that that's a, a very good assessment. Um, Nathan Rourke is a guy who, you know, f- for me, people asked a lot leading up to the draft, at what, at what point do you think he goes? And usually, from what we've seen historically, um, Jesse Palmer is the highest drafted Canadian quarterback at 15. Nathan Rourke ties that. You typically think, right, if they think that a guy is legit, 
typically teams kind of start thinking about it in the the third round. You know, usually they're they're addressing other Canadian positional needs through the first first couple of rounds of the draft. But this is uh, this is a unique kid, right? And I think that the the combination of putting a a promising young quarterback in the same quarterback room with Mike Riley uh, became too hard to uh, to pass up for for Ed Hervey. I think you've got the the ideal mentor for him out there. The only thing I'll add is, you know, we, we've talked in, in a, a bit already about how the CFL draft is unique and the way in which it differs from the NFL draft and really any pro draft. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge how we're all talking about how this guy is, you know, the, the best Canadian quarterback to come along in a long time. And he, he goes in the middle of the second round, right? I mean, we, you compare it to the NFL draft and it's just night and day, you know, it's the CFL draft is a beast unlike any other. And, you know, cause I, I agree. I think, I think work could be a starter in this league potentially at the very least he's a backup right now, uh, better than the backups on, on a lot of CFL teams. Dunk, you had a great quote from a CFL source who said he felt that Rourke could be better than six of nine backups in the CFL right now. Um, so 15 for me is great value. It's not traditional to take a quarterback that high, obviously, but you know, there, there, there's generally not a quarterback like Nathan Rourke. So, so you take him and it's, it's the right thing to do. And I think he's going to be a great player and a great fit for them out on, uh, out on the West coast. I was just going to say, you've just given me a, an idea for, for those draft junkies which is us, <laughs> you know, and we're always looking for different things to write about as it relates to, to the draft is, you know, we do different versions of redrafts and, and things like that. But how about what would the draft look like if the CFL were made up only of Canadian players, right? Where now suddenly you are talking about a great quarterback as <laughs> like just the consensus number one overall pick you know i think it would be a it would be an interesting look at just for people to see this is how the draft would change every year if you know if every team was made up of canadian players right dbs who typically aren't high picks become high picks obviously quarterbacks you know it would be uh it would be different we might have to do this coronavirus Yeah, I, I think we're all going to have to get a little bit creative over the next little while in terms of uh, the the football content that we create. So, you know, there, there's one we'll, we'll all have to work on. Well, I got to say about Rourke, if you go around and look at the quarterback situations around the league and not being disrespectful, but looking at it from an analytical point of view, and you can start in BC that, you know, I think Nathan Rourke goes in there with the best NCAA resume compared to anyone else on the roster except for Mike Riley. Now, what does that mean? You obviously have to translate the pro level, but to me, he's a favorite to be the backup there. Calgary has Bo Levi Mitchell and then a bunch of unproven guys. You could almost argue in Edmonton, yes, Logan Kilgore started a number of games, but he's pretty much average. And then in Saskatchewan, you have James Franklin. So that makes sense as a legitimate backup. Winnipeg has Sean McGuire, who's you know never really touched the field in a game setting in the regular season. And Toronto's got a number of guys on their roster, so you can understand there. Obviously, Matt Nichols, McLeod, Bethel Thompson, and they're even recruiting, if you can put it, Connor Cook, who's been in the NFL. Ty Cats have Jeremiah Masoli and Dane Evans. 
But even the Alouettes, I think Rourke right now would be an upgrade over Matthew Schilt. So to all of your guys' points and sort of what you're getting at, that Rourke, a quarterback who in the NFL draft, if it was sort of an apples-to-apples comparison in terms of talent, you know, he'd be in the first round, you know, in competition for that first overall pick, probably with Jordan Williams, just based on his NCAA resume. But for whatever reason in this league, and Ford, I'd be curious to get your take on this. I feel like Canadian quarterbacks, when they have that label on them as a national for whatever dumb reason, it almost hurts them. I feel like if Rourke was your, I don't want to say average American, but typical American that was going to come to the CFL that way, that he would have been looked at much more fondly and teams would have been racing to put him on their neg list, you know, probably mid through midway through his first year mm-hmm. at Ohio. What's your feeling on that? Yeah. And I, you know, I, when I look at that as a kind of a draft position thing, and this goes to sort of figuring out where you're going to see quarterbacks taken my own interpretation. And I've never asked anybody in a CFL front office about it, but I kind of look at how I would handle it in, in terms of, how I would value a quarterback within the draft is if he were on somebody else's neg list, how high a draft choice would you be willing to trade to acquire his rights? And so you don't often see first round picks traded for neg list players, right? Vernon Adams was, was the exception rather than the rule based on what, what his college resume was and so on. But I, I do think though, that in terms of the, the assessment or the comparison to, to other um, to other quarterbacks, to American quarterbacks, you simply look at his resume and his background, and yeah, it it compares very favorably to to the Americans against who he'll be competing for for playing time. That that no question, if you know, if Nathan Rourke were an American quarterback, he, yeah, he'd absolutely be on somebody's neg list, and he would have value, and his, that value would have gone up when he didn't sign a, an NFL free agent deal. I like your point about the negless trades or in terms of what would you trade in terms of draft pick compensation. That Vernon Adams deal is one that's you know maybe not an exact comparison, but I think it provides a concrete example for people that when you see those types of deals, you know what would a given GM right now be willing to give up? Now, as much as I love my Canadian quarterbacks – I don't know if I'd necessarily tell you that I'd sit here right now and give up my hypothetical 2021 first round pick for Nathan Rourke, but it would depend on the quarterback situation I'm in. I think if I was on one of those teams, the six that I outlined, you know, outside of Toronto, Hamilton and Saskatchewan, essentially, that I would think about it. Now I'd be trying to get a better deal and making some calls and maybe can we do it for a second round pick and I'll throw in maybe a back end roster guy. But I feel like Rourke is that good. What a lot of people I think are going to say about him is does he have that arm strength that blows you away? But on the flip side, I feel like that can get you in a lot of trouble because we hear it in the NFL all the time. And even with some guys that come up to Canada, we talk about, Oh, they have a rocket arm. Michael Bishop would be a perfect example of a guy that, you know, I have the rocket arm, but if they can't process and anticipate, it's not worth anything. So I guess, you know, 40 sort of had his say, but Hodge, do you see Rourke as an elite, potentially, I should say, elite passer in the league? You know, the, the thing that I think deserves to be talked about in terms of Rourke, I mean, I, I'm in agreement. I think arm strength is, is arguably the most overrated thing that we look at 
when it comes to quarterbacks. I mean, I, I think making good decisions with the football is, is probably the number one thing you're looking for in a quarterback. Accuracy is another. Toughness is something people talk about a lot. But let's also say Nathan Rourke is the perfect, you know, just from an athletic standpoint, from a size, from a frame standpoint, is the perfect CFL quarterback. While, while the NFL maybe wants a guy who's, you know, 6'6", 230 to stand in the pocket and, and throw. M- mind you, that's, that's changing a little bit. And, uh, you know, guys like Russell Wilson uh, having a lot of success in the NFL. But, you know, Nathan Rourke is 6'1", 6'2", you know, a little over 200 pounds. But he, he also rushed for 49 touchdowns, right, as a member of the Bobcats in three seasons. So I, I'm not concerned about his arm strength. I think it's I think it's sufficient for the CFL. I don't think it's going to blow anybody away, but I think it's sufficient. And the other areas of his game that I think matter more are not only sufficient, but I think they they are you know far and away where they need to be to be successful in the CFL. Especially when you factor in that you know on the field that is in Canada, quarterbacks need to be able to move. They need to be able to move unless you're Danny McManus and you can get rid of the ball in half a second. You need to be able to move, and and Nathan Rourke will be able to do that. JC, are you feeling my Canadian quarterback love? I really do feel it, Justin. I've followed Rourke's entire career at Ohio. I One of the guys I coach with out here in Vancouver is actually a, a Ohio University alumnus, uh, and he loves his Air Canada, uh, although he's a little bit disappointed he, he never won a MAC championship and bugs me about it all the time. <laughs> but... <laughs> He's a guy, when you talk about arm strength, we can sometimes get a little off track. We get distracted by these big big cannons, but the important thing is, do you have enough? And Rourke has more than enough. Uh, He's not going to blow anyone's hands off when he throws the football, uh, but he can throw with anticipation, he can throw with timing, uh, and he can move. So I think he can be a backup right away and potentially start games down the line. Ford, how would you assess Rourke's pure arm strength and ability as a passer in the CFL? Yeah, it's interesting because we everybody looks at Nathan Rourke and and the comment has been made that, you know, he's the best Canadian quarterback prospect to come around in, in X number of years. But, you know, I had an interesting con- conversation yesterday with, with someone who knows the position well who said, you know, Michael O'Connor is actually probably – a little bit more advanced at this stage as a pure passer. Right. And uh, the one thing I'll say about it is it, it speaks well to the future of Canadian quarterbacks when you have a couple of kids like this coming out in back to back years. But, you know, I, I liked JC's assessment that it, and it goes along with kind of the combine thing sometimes where we get caught up in splitting hundreds of seconds sometimes in talking about guys 40 times and who's faster and this, that, and the other thing is it doesn't matter if one guy is five hundredths of a second faster. They're both fast enough to play in the Canadian Football League. And so I think when you look at at Nathan Rourke, yeah, he's got he's got enough. He's not going to have the strongest arm in the league. He's never going to have the strongest arm in the league. But I believe his arm is strong enough for him to play in the Canadian Football League. So we've given a lot of love to the first rounders, and of course we had to get a big discussion in about the Canadian quarterback, Mr. Nathan Wark. Ford, what I liked that you did before the draft was highlight some guys that maybe weren't getting as much buzz as you feel 
they deserve. So I'm going to sort of go around the room here and pick out, I want you guys to pick out your favorite team player fits that are under the radar and obviously ones that we haven't talked about. So it can't be anybody in the first round and it can't be Nathan Rourke. I'll shut up about him for a while. So Hodge, I'll go with you. What's your favorite team player fit from the rest of the draft? There were a number of steals in the, uh, I think, especially in rounds four and five guys who fell, who weren't anticipated to go there. Uh, But my favorite fit maybe was honestly kicker and punter Mark Leggio falling to Winnipeg at 39. You know, Legio is arguably the best specialist prospect the CFL has seen in, in five years. Some might even argue 10. You know, he's, he's literally the U sports record holder for most field goals ever made. And part of that is, you know, a, a, a firepower offense with the Mustangs setting him up for that kind of success. But his, his career field goal percentage is, is excellent. He, his, his punting average is very good. He's, he's a guy who could realistically do all three jobs as a Canadian in, in the CFL. And, and currently there are zero players like that because Liram Hirolahu, the only player to do it in 2019 with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, is now in the NFL as a member of the Los Angeles Chargers. So, you know, to me, if, if you're a team... Rams, a buddy, Rams. Is maybe, oh, sorry, with the Rams, whatever. They have two teams and they wear the same colors. It's stupid. Um, but if you've got one, if, 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 if you've got one year, right? If if you've got one year left from a guy like Justin Medlock, who's been you know fantastic, could probably teach Legio a ton, and has also talked about retirement before. I believe he's now thirty six. Um, you know, to me, that's a great fit. You know, he could have a year, learn from Justin Medlock, and then if you're the Bombers, you can get similar production potentially from Legio but do it and get it from a Canadian player rather than using one of your DI spots on an American kicker. I want to stay on your, the kicker for a minute. And it's not just because he's a Western guy, but what Mark Leggio, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to, but looking historically, right? So you get a very good kicking prospect here using a fifth round pick. And I'm going to point back to the Calgary Stampeders drafting Tyler Crepinia a very good kicking prospect at a time when they had Rene Paredes as their place kicker, Kerpinia obviously being primarily a place kicker, but their kicking situation was very secure with Paredes and Rob Maver there. They didn't necessarily need another kicker. And you look at the way that things played out. Do you remember what the Calgary Stampeders got when they traded Tyler Kerpinia? Jerome Messam. Jerome Messam. Yeah. <laughs> right. That it is such a specific position of need that it, it doesn't just insulate your own team, but that can be a, a very valuable trade chip to have when you have, when you have a legitimate CFL kicker sort of in holding, right, in reserve, that if somebody else has need, they may end up overpaying to get that guy. So I, I think there's his value. I think he has tremendous value, obviously, as, as an heir apparent, but I think there's also... Um, an added value there to having Mark Leggio on your roster when you already have Justin Medlock. JC, you're on the hot seat, man. Give us your favorite team player fit from the draft. Don't be afraid to go deep either. Man, I I think Hodge stole mine, so I'll go elsewhere here. Um, I really like Rashawn Davis uh, at 56 overall to Ottawa. I like what he's got uh, in terms of explosion off the edge. 
I know some people question whether he can do it consistently, but he's got that athletic ability to just explode from the hips, get upfield. Uh, Ottawa likes having Canadians along the defensive line, and I think he, he fits sort of a mold there with someone like Kenny Onyeka, who they drafted a year ago, uh, that he's slogging along the defensive line, and also a local kid, so you love that uh, in the later rounds. I think that's tremendous value. Yeah, I thought there were a lot of uh, a lot of interesting picks um, in this draft, and definitely, definitely some value on, on the back end of this thing as I scroll through. But you, you know what, to me, is one of the the absolute steals of this draft is you know we often talk about the the Calgary Stampeders as as a team that's done a really good job of managing their Canadian talent over the years, and. You know, th- this is going to go off on one of my my draft tangents. I, I warned you guys about this before we started the podcast. So I have developed the theory over the years that you don't take a kicker in the first round because I don't think teams do a great job of, of really understanding how to evaluate them. Um, you know, when you look at the kickers in the Canadian Football League, the teams that are using Canadians, it's like you're as likely to hit a home run with an undrafted guy as you are to hit a home run with a guy in the first round. So why spend the first round pick is kind of the way that things have played out over the years. Now, the one that, that sort of panned out most recently as a first round pick was Rob Maver going to Calgary. The irony being they drafted him because they needed a place kicker. He ultimately ends up being one of the best in the league as their punter. Rob Maver has retired. Calgary, again, finds himself needing a kicker, needing a punter. They don't go there early. They go there in the eighth round and get a guy who's a little bit like Rob Maver, quite frankly, a very good directional punter in Kieran Burnham of St. FX. Like this is a guy who you, you presume he goes into training camp very well positioned to have the job, to have a spot on the roster as their punter, and they take him with the 61st overall pick in the draft. That seems like a steal for it is what you're pointing to. Well, yeah, and you know, I think there were there were a few of them over the over the course of this draft, and I think it it speaks a little bit to uh, to some of the depth that existed in this in this draft class. But that was one that kind of stood out to me because because it was something that you would have identified as a positional need going into the draft, and we're just so used to teams drafting based on need in the first couple of rounds. And then after that, it becomes maybe a little bit more about developmental guys on offensive line and guys who can compete for special team spots and, and so on. But this was, this was an actual need that they were able to wait and still address in, in round seven or yeah, round seven, 61 overall. All right. I'm going to McMaster university defensive back. Noah Hallett goes in the second round, 18th overall to the Winnipeg blue bombers. This kid just seems so locked in. Every time I've talked to him, watched him play live, he just has that quality about him that I think Michael Shea is going to love. And they really value who comes in and out of that locker room or who they bring in there, I should say. And I think Hallett will fit perfectly. And even though he's undersized, I really feel like he's one of those guys that because of his athleticism can make up for it. And also his smarts and his instincts on the football field. I really love the fit there that he's in Winnipeg. I mean, it kind of does help a little bit that his brother Nick Hallett is there. He can kind of show him the ropes. But I think Noah has a really intriguing upside. And you look at the Bombers and the fact that Derek Jones moved on to the BC Lions, went back home to them in free agency, that they're 
maybe not necessarily was a need there, but to me, and I might be getting a little too far ahead of myself, I think Hallett's a guy that could start at free safety in the league. We've seen Mike Daly, who's a fellow McMaster alum as well, start a lot of games in this league for the Hamilton Ticats. And, you know, there were some loose comparisons made between those two. I know they have a bit of a relationship, but I think Hallett overall, being the superior athlete, has an ability one day to get into that starting role. And I think just the way he'll approach the game in terms of what he'll do to impress Mike O'Shea really, really, really elevates him as a prospect. I was a little surprised, to be quite honest, that he was on the board at 18. But it's kind of the beauty of the CFL draft. Guys, I'm curious overall, do you each have one favorite team that you stood out? So let's say we put you on the spot, and Hodge has been working on the written piece of this that will be up on the site. So maybe Hodge will go to you first. Who would you rank that did the best job? Obviously, it's a quick ranking. We're not looking at the long term. We can do that a few years down the line in the 2020 CFL draft right away. You know, I, I've been agonizing a little bit over the written version because usually, and, I, and I've ranked the dra- draft classes for a few years now, but typically there's a couple that really stand out and it's like, wow, like that team did a great job. And there's usually a couple kind of on the opposite. And then you, you figure out kind of, you know, of the teams remaining three, four, five teams in the middle, you kind of split them up. And this year I'm really torn, honestly, because I think a team like Saskatchewan or a team like Winnipeg that didn't have very many selections, I think made them well and I think addressed a lot of needs. And by having maybe more of their picks towards the back end of the draft, we're able to kind of wait for value to come to them. Um, and I think some of the teams with, with a lot of picks, a uh, team like, like uh, you know, Hamilton, for instance, uh, some of their picks I loved, some, some I didn't care for as much. So if I had to pick one right now, uh, I'll go with Ottawa, only because I think Ottawa has been stuck in a bit of the same mold every year. They, they go O-line in one, come hell or high water, and then in, in, in round three they take a fullback. Right and and this year Are you hating on fullbacks with busted. Ford on the pod. I think he was indicating that they should have taken the fullback first and the O lineman third. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm all I'm saying is is when when you've got a team right, you've got Gabe Polan on the roster who was their third round pick last year. You you've got uh, Anthony Goslin who who's been a good player for them. You still got Brendan Galanders. Right, they they have as many offensive linemen as they could possibly need. This was the year for them to add some skill. I I wish that they'd address the receiver position a little bit better. Um, to me, that's a spot where they they could have used somebody, but they've upgraded their special teams. I think uh, in a pretty fantastic way. Um, Jacob Zott, they did they did address the O line, but I think they got a good interior guy who could play some center or guard for them. And whether you want to talk about, uh, you know, a, a Daniel Bazambombo, who I think is going to be good on teams for them, whether you want to talk about the linebacker, uh, Brad Cowan, whether you want to talk about uh, Terrence Abraham's Webster, who I think could provide some nice depth and safety. To me, at least, they were a team where you kind of look across the board and you go, okay, check, 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 check. This makes sense. And then the, the cherry on top is Michael Hoyt at 10, which I think is a great spot for him as a future is there a chance he never reports? Yes. But if he does, 
you you maybe have the best interior defensive lineman uh, in the league uh, uh, who, who's national. Like like he he could be the next Cleon Lang. He could be the next you know real impact player uh, starting at the defensive tackle position. So to me, I'll I'll go with Ottawa. Well, for me, I, there's two different teams that I think deserve a shout out. First of all, BC, and I'm a little biased here out here in Vancouver, um, but I think they hit a home run with both of their first two picks. Making that trade, you get a fantastic plug-and-play linebacker, and then you get a guy in Nathan Rourke, who we've already discussed, can make an impact early uh, and maybe do more for you down the line. Uh, and then I think they made some some smart moves in the later rounds that really improved their special teams. But in terms of a full draft that I think was handled just about as deftly as you possibly could imagine, Winnipeg came into this draft with very few picks, only one in the top 20 at number 18. And I think pick after pick, they got tremendous value. Uh, If I were to grade out their picks, which I don't really like doing, but I don't think they would have a single pick that I wouldn't have below a, that I would have below an A minus. They just got value after value after value at each selection uh, without having to move up, without having to get, grab more picks, uh, just staying pat and getting guys like Brendan O'Leary Orange, who I expected to go much higher because of his NCAA pedigree at 37, and Nick Dealey, a tremendous special teams guy at 46. Uh, I thought that was a really good draft. Ford, can we put you on the hot seat? Uh, you may, yes. Um <laughs> you know, for me, honestly, there there were a couple of teams. I thought uh, I'll say first. I thought Toronto did a did a pretty decent job, but also having the advantage of having a number of of high picks, right? Um, you know what what is it? Five in the first twenty eight, and I I thought they did a a reasonable job. However, they they sort of managed that. Um, they got guys that that fit what they wanted to do and what they're what they're trying to do. Ratio wise, I think Jack Kassar at 11 is a guy, as John alluded to earlier, who I think projects as a future starter as uh, as a middle linebacker in this league. And so uh, I thought they did a pretty good job. Overall, um, the team whose draft I looked at as as a draft class as a whole and kind of went, hmm, you know, pretty good day in terms of getting guys who are who are really a, a both a fit for their roster. And also, I thought some some pretty good values for me. It was Calgary actually. And, you know, when you, you look knowing, yeah, they could have had Jordan Williams in the first round, but I think that they also kind of recognize um, it's almost like the, the days of having a Canadian running back before there seemed to be a lot of depth at that position. And I'll, I'll go back a ways, but you think back to when Hamilton in, in 2005 had Jesse Lumsden as a Canadian running back. And it, anytime if Jesse got hurt or couldn't play a game, it completely messed them up ratio wise because they had to, they had to not only change who was playing running back, but they had to change who was playing somewhere else to manage the ratio. And I think in some ways for Calgary, not having, you know, Alex Singleton, John Cornish guys who have given them a lot of ratio flexibility in the past. I think that sometimes you look at a guy like Jordan Williams and go, if you're not, kind of insulated and prepared for, for that guy as a starter in terms of the depth that you have behind him. Sometimes it can almost be more complicated than you want to manage the ratio, if that makes sense. So as good as Jordan Williams is, 
it's almost like post Singleton Calgary has moved on, you know, from, you know, with Corey Greenwood gone, they've moved on from the Canadian middle linebacker. Um, they got the guy that according to all the talk before the draft, they wanted and Isaac at Amy Berglund at three um, in Travel Pinto, you know, you guys alluded to, I think it was JC that said first round talent you got at, at 12 and for a team that, you, you look at their Canadian receivers having over the last two years in free agency lost Lamar Durant and lost Juwan Breskison. They don't replace that size, but I think that, you know, the combination of Mayala last year and Pinto this year, they, they regain a little bit of uh, the explosion factor in their Canadian receivers that they had lost in those two guys. So I like their early picks. We talked about the sort of the value, um, you know, later on filling a need with Kieran Burnham as a punter, but just overall, you know, the, the guys that they picked, um, I like what they are. Even at 31, Curtis Gray from the university of Waterloo, I think is a guy who, who brings a little bit of a similar skill set to Fraser Sopic. And I see Sopic as a guy who can be, um, kind of a, a package guy for them on defense. And so you, you want to have guys with that similar skill set, uh, you know, I, I thought overall, as I said, that uh, that they did a pretty good job with uh, with the guys they picked. Tyson Middlemost out of McMaster. Again, you can add depth at receiver and a guy who who can be an outstanding special teams player right away for you. So it's uh, they were probably the team as a whole whose whose draft I quite liked. I was literally going between Calgary and Hamilton, and a lot of people might say that you know did the Ticats reach for Coulter Woodmansey? at five and that could potentially ruin their class in some people's eyes. But since Ford took Calgary, I'll go Hamilton because Woodman Z was, you know, right up there with the other offensive linemen in terms of rankings on their board. They get Mason Bennett who slides to eight, which was a solid value. And Bailey Feltmate, the linebacker from Acadia in the second round had sort of risen throughout the process, a really smart kid. And in the later rounds, that's what really impressed me. Round three, Tyler Ternowski, a local Hamilton boy out of the University of Waterloo who had been ultra productive there with Trey Ford as his quarterback. Those two guys were dynamic. And there were some people that were saying that Tyler Ternowski was like a Canadian version of Luke Tasker when Luke Tasker was sort of at his peak physical condition in the CFL. He's obviously been beaten up a little bit and remains a free agent, but Ternowski makes sense considering that if we do get back to playing football, David Unger seems like he's going to be a guy stepping into a starting role after Hamilton didn't resign Mike Jones. So you bring Ternowski into the fold, who's a similar type of receiver, and allow him to develop. I love that pick, maybe almost as much as their next one. Round four, 36 overall, Stavros, Katzentanis, the Bakersfield Bandit. Yeah, JC is all about him. You can fanboy later if you want, but I see him as – sort of similar to Mike Daly in a way. He's probably a little smaller, but his instincts on the field, and I just feel like his love for football are going to be really good. And when you played with Jordan Love in high school, the Green Bay Packers first-round pick, you probably know a thing or two about reading quarterbacks. So I'm really curious to see how he develops at the pro level. And then to get some potential value in round seven, 63 overall. And Ford, you talked about this earlier, that – you know, you wouldn't really take a kicker early on. Well, the Ticats had a glaring need without Liram Hirelahu there going to L.A. to play for the Rams. J.J. Molson from UCLA gets chosen 63rd overall. And even though there was some question marks about him not playing as much as you would want for the Bruins, 
I still really like the pick. It's almost a flyer that late in the draft. And it wouldn't be a tie catch draft class reaction if I didn't mention Tom Schnitzler. I saw this guy play a number of times while doing Canada West University games out there. And it just seemed like he found a way time and time again to make plays. Big, tough farm boy. And I'm sure that's what Drew Alamang, their essential Canadian director of scouting, really like. He just continued to show up and make plays, even when UBC had a poor record last year. So he was always grinding. I really like what the Ticats did overall. And it seems like I feel like you go back to the well every year a little bit and talk about what Alamang and the staff does there from a Canadian perspective. But it's one of the main reasons that they were able to be so dominant last year at 15-3. and three. Still got to get that cup, but I think they add to that depth and a really intriguing group overall for the Ticats. So I feel like we spent you know tons of time on the 2020 draft. But I know Ford's got some old stories, and we kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. So can you take us back, Ford? When was the first CFL draft that you covered, and what was that experience like? compared to now yeah and i you know i give the the background on this that i have i have literally been a a draft junkie my entire life you know probably the my favorite article that i ever wrote was uh for tsn.ca was was about being a draft junkie and some of my my favorite drafts not just in the the cfl but in other sports that that i have enjoyed so that's sort of the background on on how i ended up doing this like i mean i I remember in training camps in Calgary that I would always around that time, right in June, the NHL draft would be coming up and I would spend time in my dorm room. Once I had reached a point as a veteran guy where I didn't need to be studying my playbook, I would be pouring over the hockey news, you know, with the draft preview with all the, the profiles of prospects. So that's, it's just something that I love. And so you know, after after my playing career, I guess I started my career in the media working working for the score. And uh, we were covering OUA football games on television. I was doing, we were doing a CFL show at the time, CFL Snap. And I was also writing for, for CFL.ca. And one of the things that I loved about working sort of at both of those places from a media point of view was nobody told me what to talk about or what to write about that I could kind of choose whatever, whatever content I wanted. And the CFL draft wasn't being covered. And I was a guy who, as I said, I, I loved drafts, loved obviously the CFL draft had, had a decent understanding of it and, and the process having been around the league and, and so on and watching how teams were built. And so the, the first year that I actually covered the combine in the draft was, was 2005. And it was in Ottawa. And so it was, it was at a, you know, a dome facility, I think out in like Orleans or Gloucester, just east of uh, one of the suburbs east of Ottawa. They did the first part in the hotel. And it was, it was very different than, than what you see now in terms of, you know, the signage and the sponsorship and the marketing and the hype and, you know, the, the kids getting swag so that everybody's dressed in the same stuff. I mean, they were, they were kind of, dressed in whatever, like they had matching numbered, numbered jerseys for guys. But, but other than that, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the same kind of event that it is now in terms of being there to, to cover the event. I was literally the only member of the media who was really there to cover the CFL combine. You might've had a couple of local guys 
who were there to to do articles on, say, Ottawa players, guys with Ottawa ties who were, were at the combine and things like that. And, um, you know, I mean, there are, there are a couple of things that, that really stood out to me about that year in, in terms of, you know, just lessons learned and experience. And, you, you know, I mean, you guys know, you guys have all been doing this for a while now. And it's almost like every year something happens that, that you sort of add to the notebook, right? You add to your, to your personal draft Bible, your personal scouting Bible in terms of how you look at things. And, and one of the ones for me, I, I've told John this story before about is just about trusting your gut. And so I remember being at the, the combine that year and I'm watching the receiver group warm up and do their individual period and, and so on. And the guy who I thought was the best receiver there, there's, you know, there are some big, tall guys there, some physically impressive looking guys, but there's this little blonde kid and it's Brett Ralph. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching him and Brett Ralph, the way he moves, the way he catches the ball, his footwork, the way he runs routes. I'm thinking that guy, he's the best receiver here, but nobody's talking about Brett Ralph because he was a guy who, you know, had bounced around a little bit in college. Like he was at three different schools and he, he did his, his uh, Mormon mission sort of in the middle of his, his college career. But the reality was Brett Ralph was a time, if you think back, we're talking about early 2000s now, as a Canadian skill player, for a Canadian skill player to go down to the States and not redshirt his first year. Like he played as a true freshman at the University of Wyoming, played at Boise State, eventually he transfers home. So he had, set, had to sit out as a transfer, he had to sit out his draft year. And so nobody's really talking about him. He's totally flying under the radar. So... I think he's the best guy, but I don't really say anything. I mean, it's my first combine and I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I mean, these personnel guys must know what they're doing, right? They're getting paid to do this. Well, draft day comes and clearly nine teams disagreed with my assessment because Brett Ralph doesn't go until the sixth round. He was the first pick of the sixth round. But ultimately, as that 2005 season plays out, Brett Ralph ends up as the leading rookie receiver, not just the leading rookie Canadian receiver, the leading rookie receiver in the Canadian Football League that season playing for, for the Calgary Stampeders. And, and so I guess the lesson that I learned from that was, you know, as much as you, you value other people's opinions and input and kind of talking things through and scouting, that ultimately, you know, trust your own eyes, trust your own opinion of things, because ultimately that's, that's kind of what it is even for the scouts, right, is their own opinion of, of, of who's good and who's not. So that was that was one of the things that really stood out to me about that year. That year, thirty-four catches, six hundred nine yards, three touchdowns for Brett Ralph. Decent rookie season. For I'm curious, is there like a Tom Brady moment that stands out for you? Because whenever anyone talks about Tom Brady and the draft, mm-hmm. they go back to him at the combine in the big T-shirt and the shorts, and he looks like this gangly guy who's unathletic, but yet. We know now he's won six Super Bowls and translated into, arguably, it's up for debate, I would say he's at the top, but one of the best quarterbacks ever to play in the NFL. Was there a guy that you saw over your years at the CFL Combine that you know didn't really look like a good athlete, maybe didn't put up these impressive testing numbers, but then went on to potentially have a Hall of Fame-worthy career? Yeah, I think one of the ones that um, that stands out for me is uh, is is probably Craig Butler 
And I, I believe that would have been the, the 2011 draft that, uh, that Butler was in. And, you know, the thing that stood out that year was there were some DBs who, who tested absolutely through the roof in, in that draft class, like guys that were, were just insane in terms of their testing. And Craig Butler was a guy who, you know, was very pedestrian as, as a tester, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a combine guy. He's a football player. And, and so you had guys with, with just remarkable numbers as defensive backs from a testing point of view, but you know, it then gets to the one-on-ones and as we know, the one-on-ones receivers versus DBs very much an offensive friendly drill, right? That totally the, in the favor of, of the receivers to win those. And Craig Butler gets out there and absolutely shuts down everybody in the one-on-ones and ends up being, ends up being a second round pick that year, which as you know, is significant, right? For a Canadian defensive back, typically not very high picks and, uh, you know, has a really good rookie year. And if not for injuries, you know, Craig Butler might still be a very significant player in the Canadian football league now coaching with the Hamilton tiger cats. But it was, it was, one of those, like people walked away, you know, <laughs> it was kind of like, forget about the testing. This guy is a football player. And you know, a lot of people, if you talk to scouts who were, were in the league at that time, they will tell you like, that was probably the most dominant performance ever by a defensive player in, in that particular drill was by Craig Butler. It was a very dominant performance. Yeah, that was one of my early years in Ford. You were kind enough to take, Young buck like me, and you've done it with Hodge, and I'm sure it'll happen with JC now under your wing and show us the rope. So I'm kind of curious to get the other perspective. Hodge, when you were coming up and starting to be a draft guru, you know, was Dwayne Ford sort of this otherworldly figure that was like bigger than life? And what was it like the first time to meet him? Well, the the first time I met Dwayne Ford was the 2017 CFL Combine. That was my first combine. And by the way, the first time Mr. Ford shared that shared his his Brett Ralph story with him, um, uh, my my version of that story is Johnny Augustine, who went out of Guelph running back at that 17 combine, tested well, looked the part. Maybe only five eight, but that didn't stop him in the blocking drills from from pancaking both Herbin brothers, who have both had very good careers as linebackers in the CFL this far, and uh, and yet Augustine goes undrafted, even though he he actually appeared at number twenty on the spring scouting bureau that year, you know, and and, and I remember saying, hey, I'm I'm not saying he should go first overall to Winnipeg, but this is a guy who you know, should, should at least be a, a, a sixth round pick, maybe, maybe up into the third or fourth rounds if a team really likes them and they're planning on starting a Canadian. And yet he goes undrafted. And now four years later, the number one pick faith Akakati is two years out of football. And Johnny Augustine is, 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 is a great cup champion. Um, but the thing I remember most about that combine was being afraid to go and talk to Dwayne Ford. But when he needed a ride to the hotel, I had a car and Drew and Dunk, being the freedom <laughs> boys, said, let's offer him a ride to the hotel. And I said, perfect. 
Because then after I drive to the hotel the next day, I can say, hey, how you doing? And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was a nice moment. It was also uh, a bit nerve wracking because I, I drive a very small and uncomfortable car. So I was hoping that uh, <laughs> Dwayne would be able to get comfortable at my entry level Mazda. And, and, and fortunately, he did. <laughs> How'd you fit in there, Ford? We we did all right. I, I do remember, uh, you know, kind of all of us being uh, being a little bit tight in there, but but it was all good. I appreciated the ride, and it, it was Regina, so everything is three minutes away, which is the nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very and true. JC, buddy, what about for you? This first time, you know, interacting with Ford, and he's sort of been a role model for you in terms of covering the draft and you've been a guy that's really come to love the CFL draft. So what's it like to, you know, interact with Ford? Well, I mean, this is, this is kind of surreal. I started out similar to Ford, I guess. Uh, I was a first year university student who uh, I was not athletically gifted, so I wasn't able to continue my football career. Uh, and so I sort of clung to the CFL draft as a way to stay connected uh, with the sport initially and I would sit in my first year dorm room uh, with, you know, Justin Dunk's combine coverage in front of me and, and Ford's mock draft and, and John Hodge's articles on Blue Bombers Talk, uh, doing all my research uh, and trying to get to know all the prospects. And now here I am several years later uh, sitting down and talking with all you guys about the draft. So it's been pretty surreal. Uh, and I just, I just love... Uh, getting to know all these prospects. Uh, this has been a real special uh, draft season for me. Uh, I, I wish it would have been different because this was the first year I was supposed to be at the Combine in person, uh, and that was unfortunately canceled. Uh, but being able to work with you guys, put together a full draft board, talk with all the prospects uh, has just been incredible, and it's something I hope to continue to do in one form or another uh, for a long, long time. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I want to tell you guys is, you know, I mentioned like 2005 and for the first several years that I was doing this, I was the only guy doing this, right? I was the only member of the media covering the draft. And before that, there was, there was nobody else doing it. And one of the things that I think it has changed, quite honestly, as, you know, as I started doing it and as you guys have started doing it and are absolutely killing it, by the way, I, I love the work that you guys do. You know, obviously Marshall Ferguson doing his stuff over at CFL.ca. I enjoy the work that the other guys who are really into the draft do. But one of, like, you guys have contributed to, to really changing the way that the draft happens in the Canadian Football League because I, I truly believe that there was, there was, a lack of accountability about the process of the draft prior to people starting to cover it. And I, I think that if you look now versus in 2005, in terms of the, the level of work that the teams put into the draft, you know, it, it has always mattered in terms of building teams to an extent. Right. But you, you also have to consider that this is a league where all free agency is completely unrestricted. So as long as you're willing to, to sort of pay the money, you can make up for draft mistakes. And so I think sometimes that the importance of the draft was was left overlooked. But I think honestly that as as more and more media have started covering the draft, I think it has made teams a lot more accountable 
for for the way that they approach the draft, the way that they go about their business and their scouting and and taking the picks even in the later rounds a little bit more seriously. Like I can remember in, in early years, teams passing on picks as it got towards to the end of the draft, as it gets to, you know, to the last round or, or really kind of you saw more throwaway picks where it was sort of, oh, let's just pick the local guy that we don't have to pay money to bring him to camp and, and those sorts of things. And, and now, you know, a lot of it has to do with, with the work that you guys do. I mean, you know, John putting, putting grades on, uh, on 73 selections makes people accountable right to the last second. Right. And, and JC, I listened to the, to the cast last night and the knowledge of the guys was just outstanding. Like I, I was listening to it, dying to jump into the, into the conversation with you guys because it was, it was so good. It was so enjoyable. And so I just want to let you guys know how much, I appreciate the work that that you guys do in covering this thing because it's uh, it's for a long time been an event that I've been so passionate about. Ford, man, you're too kind as a trailblazer, and I, I feel like in terms of the NFL draft, like this was obviously a long time ago, but it almost had that same feel. Though, so I mean, for the people out there, like, can you sort of explain? why the CFL draft is important because I feel like in the States we see, you know, mock drafts almost year round. They're literally out right after that same draft is over, probably the next day. And then people are watching these prospects all year round in the NCAA. It's obviously to a whole different level, but I would just like to see, you know, people get into it a little more because as you said, this is one of the re real key building blocks for a team. So why is it, so important in your mind in terms of critical success for a team to ultimately hoist a great cup. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time, right. That, and then you and I have had so many conversations, Justin, over the years about, about the draft. I mean, you, you were kind of the, the next guy in, right. When, uh, you know, as I was kind of the first guy standing alone and you were, you were the next guy to, to be all over it and, and, and came at it, like you're on fire, but uh, you know, it's uh, when you look at it, we talk all the time in this league about the, the pillars of success for teams, the things that are most important. And you talk about quarterback play. The other thing that comes out of people's mouths right away is always the quality of a team's Canadians. Well, where do you get those Canadians? You get them from the draft. We talk about the importance in three-down football of the kicking game. And I don't just mean the, the guy kicking the ball, but special teams play is so important in terms of determining field position. Well, who are most of those guys? They're the Canadian guys that you're, you're getting through the draft. You know, And one of the things that I would, I've been lobbying the CFL for so long that I would like to see change that would give even more meaning to the draft, I desperately want to see the free agency system change. You know, like I, I think that there shouldn't be unrestricted free agency until after four years of service in the league so that teams actually almost guaranteed get, get at least a shot at a second contract out of a guy, right? So that, that the draft becomes less geographical than it has become in recent years where teams have to think about, well, will he resign after his rookie contract after we've put three years into developing him? Will he stay? You know, I would like to see that that level of continuity 
because it would it would make the draft even even that much more important you know and uh you know i mean we talk talked earlier about how the draft would change if if you had an all canadian league and i'm not trying to make it an all canadian league that's not what i mean but i would like to see just that level of sort of importance in terms of everybody's reaction to the draft in terms of the the long term success of of a team you know that's just the I guess it's the the junkie in me, right? The draft junkie in me that I, I want to see the draft be even more important than it already is. The all Canadian idea is intriguing. And even the contract one is too, because if you look at the NFL draft, first round picks are secured for four years, plus there's a fifth year option. And then I believe, you know, second round is four. And then the guys that are signing undrafted free agents, a standard contract is three. So maybe that's something that, the CFL could look at players maybe coming up from the States aren't necessarily one going to be doing that, but are you sort of referring to that just for the guys that come through the CFL draft or any player? Well, I, I think for any player and, you know, I mean, I have my, my own sort of very rough framework of, of what I would pitch to the league to do. But I, I think if you had a, a scenario where um, for example, you make in those first, within those first four years, you're not stopping guys from changing teams. You're not stopping teams from signing free agents from other teams, but you make it a little more difficult for, for those changes to happen. So, you know, create a, a right to match, right, for the, the team, for a guy's existing team. And if a player changes teams, then there's compensation. And so for a Canadian player changing a team, I would suggest that you have a compensation you know, based on how many snaps that player played the previous year, right? You know, you can come up with a formula based on offensive snaps, defensive snaps, if a guy is primarily a special teams player. And you you come up with a formula in terms of how high a draft choice the compensation will be for that player. For an American player, I think you can do the compensation in terms of negless players. So as an example... Um, you know, a guy is a starter, plays X number of snaps or signs a contract that's starting money that um, say that the team that is signing him, okay, you get to protect 10 of the 30 players on your neg list. The team that loses the player can choose any of the other 20 players on your neg list as compensation. You know, if it's a, a lower contract, say you're signing like a backup player, special teams guy, okay, you can protect 20 guys on your neg list and they get to choose from 10, something like that. So your compensation for losing a Canadian player is a draft pick. Your compensation for losing an American player is a neg list guy. And, you know, just something to, to tighten up the free agency system a little bit. You know, I'll tell you, I, I have a 16 year old son who is a huge, a huge football fan and follows the CFL very closely. And so as I've been getting ready for the draft and obviously his school hours are, kind of flexible during uh during this time um you know he's kind of looking over my shoulder at a lot of what i'm doing and we're we're he's he's kind of a a recruiting and and draft junkie kind of guy too and um you know so we have a lot of interesting conversations and he's looking at at rosters as we're talking about you know teams losing guys and guys changing teams and he, as, as a young fan, we always talk about trying to get that younger generation, said there's too much turnover. There's too much turnover of players between teams. 
in the CFL. And I, I think the same thing. You look especially at the last couple of years at how many guys have changed teams. Like you've had guys, and I know the, the CBA was part of the, part of the issue most recently, but when you have guys changing teams in free agency, like star players changing teams in free agency two years in a row, um, I think you need to, I think you need to take another look at the system. Intriguing, intriguing. Well, guys, we're running short on time, but if you can believe it, we've almost gone two hours here of scintillating draft talk, if I do say so myself. So maybe go around the horn. One last comment from you guys on the draft overall or just the experience. We'll go young to, we'll say veteran. So, JC, start with you. (laughs) Less young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the last comment I want to make uh, is more to any players that might be listening, whether you're in this draft class or, or the next draft class. And something I like to emphasize, uh, I do it on Twitter every year. Ultimately, football scouting is a gamble, uh, and scouts are, are wrong about as often as they're right. Uh, so if you're a guy who was taken with a late-round pick or not selected at all, you still have a shot. What you do next will determine your chance in the CFL. And the same goes for the guys who were selected in the first round or the second round, high draft picks. If you take that as an endorsement of your talent and, and decide to coast, you will not make it in this league. Um, so what you do tomorrow, what you do the next day, what you do in your tra- training camps and in your practices uh, will determine your success far more than what any of us uh, experts have to say. My closing words will be um, one of the reasons I love the CFL draft is that it's so weird. Um, it's such a it's such an oddball draft. It's such a unique event. And I think the 2020 draft will be, even by CFL, CFL standards, remembered as one of the oddest, one of, the oddest. Uh, of its kind. I mean, you have players like Jordan Williams or, or Matt McConnell or Elaine Pay who haven't played football since 2017, yet here they are in the draft. You, you have half a dozen guys who, who are coming off doping violations or drug infractions or, you know, who haven't played uh, uh, very much or produced after giant seasons. You know, Brissett, a guy, had, had a massive 20, uh, 2017 season. Uh, Brendan, Le- Brendan O'Leary-Orange, another guy, massive uh, uh, 2017 season and, that, and then kind of falls off and, and – there's always guys like that in the CFL draft, guys who, I don't know what the, the term you want to use, whether they're, you know, uh, uh, you know, great players with red flags or you want to call them, you know, uh, uh, oddballs. I, I don't know the term, but, you know, you take that plus the, you know, the fact that, that the whole world is in a health pandemic at the moment that meant these guys couldn't even test pro days or, you couldn't have the you know the appropriate combines you normally do um you know it, it, it was cool to cover this draft so so closely and and invest so much time and energy you know talking about it preparing for it and 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 obviously breaking it down after the fact with you gentlemen you know it's it's one that I don't think we'll ever forget not that you know any CFL draft is boring because they're always super interesting but this one, um, at least for the 10-ish years I've paid attention to the draft and five years now that I've covered the draft, 
this is the weirdest one for me. And 30 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if this was still the weirdest one that stands out as, you know, such an unpredictable year full of, you know, just over the top storylines. It's, uh, it's certainly a unique one in that respect. Yeah, I mean, my, my take is very similar to John's, that it is, it is such a unique draft because of the circumstances. I think that in most years, there's, as the draft approaches, there's not complete consensus, obviously, but there's a certain level of consensus to a general order of players near the top of the draft. But again, I mean, the CFL draft is always unique that you are going to see nine draft boards in the CFL will vary more than all of the NFL draft boards combined, right? That's just the the nature of this draft. But this year, I think with, without combines, which presents a body of information that is the same for all teams, all teams have the same testing numbers from the combines, you know, all teams sort of see the same things in terms of guys, body language and, and interactions at the combine the interviews are all happening like everybody's going to interview the same players on the same days at the combine so if a guy's having a good day or a bad day or whatever the case may be everybody kind of has the same body of information from the combine now in terms of collecting their other information for the draft everybody is going to do different things and go through different methods well this year you take out that combine chunk and you have everybody getting different information and doing different things for the draft. And this is where I think it, it became so wild and where, where, you know, for you guys doing, doing mock drafts, it would have been an impossible year to project because everybody's, every team's evaluations that are already drastically different became even, even more drastically different and even more unpredictable. And it, uh, it made for a very interesting draft. Like, you know, I mean, you know, the four of us should get together, start a little group text, and let's start putting together a list of guys who you lost money on because they didn't get picked in this draft. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are there are some interesting guys, right? That that were still out there at the end of this thing, and um, you know, let alone the surprises in terms of of where guys went during the draft. So it was it was definitely uh, definitely an interesting one. I'll be very curious to see the the you know, waiver additions each team makes after the draft, because I think that there was some depth that you may see some of those guys making rosters. So it'll, uh, it'll be fascinating, you know, and the other thing that I want to throw on the end of this is you guys got to promise me that the four of us are going to get together and have another one of these round table discussions, whether it's strictly about the draft or about, you know, all things football, but, uh, but this has been a lot of fun for me. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.